Grab your Bibles and flip to the book of John. Wasn't that kind of cool? That was really cool. I thought it was fantastic. <laughs> I, don't think I, I don't care if you guys thought it was fantastic. I thought it was awesome. So, uh, flip to the gospel according to John. So we're starting a new series today called Believe, and um, it's, a, it's a study on the book of John. So, so as you flip there, or if you grabbed one of those notebooks that you received as you walked in, you can just flip to the first page, and you are in the gospel according to John. Um, so as you got those notebooks, maybe you're wondering, why did I receive a notebook? I don't journal. I'm not a journal guy or a girl. And so like, why'd you give me a journal? Um, well, there's a couple reasons for this. Uh, we, first of all, want you to take notes. Yeah. I think taking notes is good. And so, um, so for you to take notes as we study through this book. And then number two is that there's a chance that in your life uh, that you will walk through the book of John with someone. And now, because you have the study notes in there, you can use those study notes to disciple somebody else. So it's kind of intentional in that way. And uh, we're going to try to do this always as we jump into different books in the Bible that we will um, have notebooks like that. Okay, cool. So as we gear up, gear up for our study, I want, I want us to recognize something. Let's recognize this. Let's recognize that we live in a skeptical age. Uh, we live in a skeptical age. So uh, there's, a, there's a prayer recorded in Mark's gospel, a, the desperate prayer of a parent. In Mark 9, 20, 24, we hear it, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. So this prayer comes from a father who wants to believe that the son will be healed by Jesus. And fast forward to 2,000 years later, this prayer has marked our skeptical age. Uh, James K.A. Smith uh, says this, We don't believe instead of doubting. We believe while doubting. We're all Thomas now. So the Thomas that Smith is referring to is the doubting Thomas, and he's the disciple of Jesus that said, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. So that's us. Uh, we have to see, we have to touch, or else we'll never believe. I probably don't have to to do too much persuading to convince you that believing doesn't come easy anymore. We believe while doubting. Uh, we even doubt the smallest things. For instance, uh, this week, uh, earlier this week, Sarah texted me and said, it's snowing. And so what did I do? I opened my weather app and looked at my weather app and said, it's raining. So I was like, she's wrong. So... <laughs> Then I get up to the window, look out of my office window, and it's snowing, right? So like, but I, I didn't believe her. Like, like, even though I look at the I wanted to believe Sarah, but, but I doubted her. And so she was right, I, but it was snowing. So right now, if I said, sure, it's kind of sunny right now, but, but if I said it's snowing outside, you probably would do the same thing, right? You probably would be like, ah, uh, is it really snowing? The weather channel said it's 70 degrees, really nice. Let me check the app. So you check the app, and sure enough, it says 70 degrees. You're like, yep, Sergey is wrong. So, and then even, even 
if you did that, you probably then go outside after the service and check, is it really snowing? Is it not snowing? So, so because not only do you not believe me, but you also don't believe the weather app, because who believes the weather app, right? <laughs> um, but, and that's the sm- simplest of things, right? Like, I'm talking about the simplest, I'm talking about weather here, and even then, I doubted the person that I trust the most, my wife, right? Like, uh, and, and, that, and, and so that spreads and extends to so many other areas of our life. We are the prove-it society. Uh, we won't believe it until you prove it. And that is rooted in doubt. We doubt everyone on everything. Like we Google search. Somebody says something and we're just like, mm, just Google search it. Like right, as you're walking away, you're like, I'm not sure if that was true. I mean, and then we even have a website that checks our facts. It's like a, a website designed to make sure that you didn't lie, because there's a website that lie, right? And so, so it's, 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 we are in the prove-it society. And the book of John speaks into this reality. It deals with all of these topics, doubt, faith, belief. In fact, the purpose of this book is stated by the author in John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. So flip there. Um, I want you to see this. Chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. It's all the way to the end. And so if you have this journal, just flip to the back and you should be pretty much there. So this is what the author says. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the author, the author gives us the reason for his writing. His reason is pretty straightforward. He is writing so that you may believe. Not some general belief, uh, but, but you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And when you believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, then, then, then that you may have life in his name. Again, pretty straightforward. The author is revealing to us why he's writing this book. He wants us to have faith that's grounded in Jesus, and his appeal to have faith that's grounded in Jesus is for both those who are seeking God for the very first time and for those who have been walking with God for years. There's a great quote describing this book, the book of John. It goes like this. This book is deep enough for an elephant to swim and shallow enough for a child not to drown. And no one actually knows who exactly said, said it first. Uh, some suggest it was St. Augustine, but we don't really know. But I love this quote because this book really does speak to the person who has been living in faith for a long, long time. You'll find that it never runs dry when you go to this book. You can sink deeper and deeper into this book and every time, every time you return, And studying these stories of Jesus will transform our lives. But this book is also fantastic for those who are seeking. Uh, It it speaks to the person who is doubting. Uh, It speaks to a person who does not believe yet. And 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 the purpose stays the same regardless where you have been. The purpose stays the same for all of us in here to grow in faith that is rooted in Jesus. That's the author's intent. He said it, right? But who is the author? Who is the author? Maybe you're thinking, 
that's obvious, it's John, right? The gospel according to John. Well, you're correct, it is John, uh, but this book actually never says John's name. The book does allude to author several times throughout the book, but it never actually says John. Uh, for example, John chapter 13, verse 23, the author refers to himself. He says, he, says, he says this, one of his disciples whom Jesus loves, that's him talking about himself, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. Reclining at table at Jesus' side. In John chapter 20, verse 2, he says basically the same thing about himself. He says, uh, so she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loves. So that's, that is John's way of including himself in the story. Uh, he is writing this as someone who was there. In fact, he was a disciple of Jesus, and he confidently wrote uh, the one whom Jesus loves. So the author of this book is a guy named John who Jesus loves. But which John is it? Is there a debate about which John is it? Uh, there's some debate about which John it is. It's a lively debate between a few scholars. So most of you probably don't care. But I will still tell you. But basically, there was another guy, John, who went as John the Elder. And, and he was also with Jesus and eventually became elder in Jerusalem. And both of them walked with Jesus. Both of them were close friends with Jesus. But one of them was selected by Jesus to be one of the 12 disciples. And that is the one who we believe wrote this book, John, the son of Zebedee. But in reality, in reality, it doesn't matter which John wrote this book because this book is not about John, but about Jesus. And the purpose of this book is for us to believe in this Jesus, right? So it's not to figure out which John wrote it, but it's to believe in Jesus. So now we know the purpose of the book. Now we know who wrote the book. So what's the context of the book? Um, uh, we ask this question because the context often matters so that we can discern some important content from the book. Uh, so context answers the question of when it was written and what was going on during this time. And usually when we jump into a new book, we figure out what was the context of the book, like what was going on historically and it helps us understand the culture of this book and, and that it was written in and so on, right? And usually that is, that is a helpful thing to do, but with John's gospel, the context of the time and place in which he was writing is less important because John is writing between 40 or 50 years after the resurrection of Jesus. He's writing probably from Ephesus, and maybe there are people who struggle with doubt during this time, but most likely John was getting older and he wanted to write about Jesus. He wanted everyone to hear about Jesus and believe in this Son of God. So the context of the time and place he's writing about is more important than his current context. Now, does that make sense? So like his, the context that he is writing about, the life of Jesus, is more important than where he's writing from. He's writing when Jesus walked on this planet. And as we saw earlier, he's not writing everything he could write about Jesus, right? He's not just going, okay, I'm sitting down, I'm just going to write everything that ever happened that I could remember about Jesus. No, he has a purpose here. As verse 30 said, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, 
which are not written in this book. And the next chapter, 21, verse 25, he says this, Now there are many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written? I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So he flat out just tells us that he is writing so that the people believe in this Jesus, and he couldn't possibly write down everything, but he is writing a lot of things about Jesus and his life. So another question we often ask when we start a new book is is this, what genre is this? Is this historical? Is this poetry? Is this a letter? Uh, You know, when we started the Minor Prophets, we answered that with each book that we looked at it. When we studied uh, a book in the New Testament, Paul's letter, we, we understood what it means to read a letter. So same thing here. What genre is this? Well, without getting into all the details, the Gospels are their own kind of genre. Now, the closest thing we have to this type of genre is this genre that was written in the Roman, during the Roman Empire called historical autobiography. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are in the Gospel genre, their own genre. And, and these four books look to answer these three questions. What did Jesus do? So this is what makes the Gospels the kind of a historical uh, biography or autobiography. It's his life, death, and resurrection are the main points of the story. And John will do that. Uh, John will answer that question. What did Jesus do? Another question in this genre answers, what did Jesus say? Uh, The Gospels record conversations between Jesus and others, and John will do that. We'll see conversations between Jesus and Nicodemus. We'll see conversations between Jesus and the woman at the well. We'll see conversations between Jesus and the Jewish crowd or the Jewish authorities. We'll see Jesus interact with others. And one thing I want you to notice in all of these interactions is how Jesus takes time with people. How Jesus takes time. He's not rushed in those conversations. So pay attention to that as we read and study this book. Lastly, this genre answers this question, how did people respond to Jesus? And I love this about the Gospels because no one responds to Jesus and thinks Jesus is just a good dude. Like they respond to him either as a son of God and they believe in him or they leave angry with him. And we'll see some of that as well in the book of John. John is different than other Gospels. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic Gospels, and that means that they are similar, and they have similar stories. Some of the phrasing is actually word for word, or at least close to it, and they follow Jesus in the same kind of way. But John is different than the other three Gospels. He doesn't include parables. He doesn't start with Jesus' birth or even include the birth story. The Lord's Supper is not included, uh, no baptism, and he doesn't even mention the ascension. In fact, chapters 2 through 4 are unique just to John. That means the wedding story of Jesus turning water into wine, the Nicodemus story, the famous verse of John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That verse is unique to John. Like you knew that verse since you were three years old. That's unique only to John. And even the story of Jesus and the woman at the well is unique to John. 
And there's a lot of unique material to John um, that, that we'll study. Overall, John has one thing in mind, and that's what we said earlier. He wants the reader to believe in Jesus, who is Christ. So we know the purpose of the book now. Uh, we know who wrote the book. We know the context of this book, and we know the genre of the book. One last thing we like to do when we jump into a new book is to answer what themes are there, right? So, so we did this with the Minor Prophets again, and so same thing here. What themes are in the book of John? And there are many themes in the book of John, but, but uh, the ones that stand out are, are Let's start with this one. The first one that stands out is the theme of contrast. Light and darkness. Life and death. Fleeting and eternal. Right? The contrast between, it's, 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 it goes back and forth. Like even first chapter has that as we jump in next week to first chapter. Light and darkness. We'll see that. Life and death. Fleeting and eternal. Another theme that John focuses on on is what scholars call the misunderstood statements. Uh, these are the statements where Jesus says, you say this, but I tell you this. This happens over and over, and I would say that it, happens, it happened then, and it happens now. They misunderstood Jesus, and we misunderstand Jesus. And Jesus kindly corrects their view, and he will do the same to some of our views. Look for these themes as we study in the book of John. The last theme that I want to point out is the theme that has many categories, right? So it's one theme, but it has like many, many categories. Uh, and it will fall under the umbrella of Old Testament references. It's a theme that keeps on giving. Uh, look at the way he opens the book. So go back to John chapter 1. He says this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? So this takes us all the way back to the very first words in the Bible, in the beginning God created. So by using similar language here, John takes us back to the beginning, and he does this intentionally. He's showing us that, this, that Jesus is God and that he is the Messiah. Take another example. Uh, another of these sub-themes in the book of John are the seven signs, right? So we just saw it in the video, all the seven signs play out. Throughout the book, John tells us about these seven miraculous signs that Jesus performs, and he does this to show that Jesus is, the great, is greater than Moses. So in Deuteronomy chapter 34, 10 through 12, is describing Moses after he died, right? And it says this, and there, was not and, and there has not arise a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in sight of of all Israel. So when John describes the seven signs that Jesus had done, he's saying he, Jesus, is gr a greater prophet than Moses. Here's someone who has done greater signs and wonders than Moses. He's proving that Jesus is the Christ. Another example of this is John uses seven I am statements. 
Again, it's a reference to Old Testament. I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the door of the sheep. I'm the resurrection and the life. Uh, I'm the good shepherd. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the true vine. So through, through these seven statements, John takes us back to Moses when he asks God what to call him. And in Exodus, Exodus chapter 3, 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he says, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And Jesus calls himself, I am. John uses uh, these Old Testament references to point to the fact that Jesus is Christ. He spent the majority of the book showing us that this Jesus is not just some good dude, but the Messiah. As he said in chapter 20, verse 31, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John wants us to believe this Jesus. And so he's going to show us all these ways pointing. Each week we're going to see a way or another way of him showing us why we need to believe in this Messiah. He wants us to believe in this Christ. He wants us to see him as, as he really is the Son of God. But he doesn't stop there, right? He doesn't stop there. He doesn't just say, I want you to believe, period. No, no, he says that by believing, you may have life in his name. John wants us to experience the true nature of his salvation, receiving life, eternal life. And the fact is, from the beginning, first words till the end, this theme is going on and on. From the very first words, we'll see that he cares deeply about life, about eternal life, or about your salvation. In chapter 1, verse 4, he says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. In John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have what? Eternal life. In him was life, but by believing in him, we get eternal life. Not just life forever, but abundant life with him. In chapter 5, verse 24, says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. In chapter 11, verse 25, 26, he says this, Jesus said to, to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, Though he die, he shall, he, yet shall he live. And whoever in everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And in chapter 14, verse 6, he says, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The life that John cares about for us, the life that we need is a spiritual, abundant, eternal life delivered from judgment, and it comes through belief in Jesus. But we don't receive Christ like some package, right? Like we don't order life and faith on Amazon and, and get it delivered in the front door two days later. Like that's not how it works. The best way to understand what it means to believe in Christ and receive life is to think of adoption. Sure, when you are adopted, you receive a piece of paper that states that you are adopted, but that paper doesn't mean much. What really brings adoption home is the relationship with the family that now is yours. If a family had boys, now they're your brothers. If a family had girls, now they're your sisters. 
What makes a family is the togetherness, right? As a family, everyone sleeps in the same house. As a family, everyone has a meal together. As a family, during Christmas, gifts are exchanged. As a family, you watch movies together or play board games together. As a family, if someone dies, grief is experienced together. As a family, you celebrate one, one another's victories. And when you are in a family, you belong. And you see, adoption brings you into this new, beautiful relationship. And John is inviting us into this new life with Christ, in Christ. That means you are in Christ and you will get all the benefits of belonging in a family. So when we believe, we receive life of a loving belonging with the Savior of the world. And John wants us to become alive He's not inviting his readers to perfection. No, he knows the perfect one. He knows the one who takes the sins of the world. He knows that if you believe and receive life, then you will belong on that branch. You'll be in his family. You're adopted. And the wrath of God will be removed, and you will receive the righteousness of Jesus on you. That means your relationship with God will be reconciled, and because of adoption, that relationship is certain for eternity. That's the book of John that we're going to be studying. Uh, There's so much more that I could say, Uh, but, but I want us to stop at that because we're going to walk through it. We're going to be walking through the book of John for, I believe it's 66 weeks. Right? So it's going to be a year and a half. We'll take some breaks, so don't worry. You're not going to you know, be like, what in the world? Like in the summer, we'll take some time off. At Advent, we'll take time off. But next Easter is when we'll be done, kind of, a little bit farther out. But, but, but just, I'm excited to jump into this book. I'm excited to jump into this book. It's an amazing book. And, and I want to invite you to join this study, Right? Yes, you're here at church. You're like, yeah, I'm studying. But I want you to journey with our church through, through this book. And, and I want you to invite others to journey through this book. Whether it's here on Sunday or whether you just take one of these notebooks, grab an extra one, and go and study this book with a friend. Because this book is going to give us faith and life. And so uh, may this study of John awaken and reawaken belief in all of us. I I don't know where you are, but I pray that this prayer will be a reality, that there's going to be belief that's awakened and reawakened in all of us. And may God produce faith for those who are deeply doubting. May God save and bring people into a relationship with him. So let's 